Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the city of Hamilton is opening its cool-down stations due to the heat wave, but we still have this pandemic to contend with. How's that going? Paul Johnson's going to join us and talk about that. It's been a couple of days since Premier Doug Ford announced that anyone can get tested for COVID-19. What's the status here in the Hamilton area? And is the Ontario government's long-term care commission the best way to deal with that crisis? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There is a heat warning in effect. We wanted to have Paul Johnson on, the Director of Emergency Operations for the city, to bring us up to speed on some of the uh, new things with COVID-19. And and we're going to get to that in a couple of seconds. But I want to bring Paul on, first of all, uh, to talk about the current situation. Paul Johnson, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. Uh, listen. So here we are dealing with COVID, dealing with uh, with you know uh, with uh, testing and dealing with you know uh, self isolation and all sorts of stuff. Why not throw a heat wave in, Paul, just to make things a little bit crazier for you? And uh, which is what we're dealing with right now. Uh, and and so this is just another major thing that's been shoved in front of you right now, and the city's going to have to deal with this. Uh, now we've talked about this in the past, Paul, when when there's been a severe heat warnings here, here in the Hamilton area, and there is a protocol that's in place. But this is COVID-19, and uh, this is a different animal now, isn't it? Uh, it absolutely is, and, and thank goodness we were just sitting all sitting with our feet up on the desk because uh, we could just oh yeah, crash. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, the first rule of emergency planning is don't forget there can always be another emergency along the way. And uh, yeah. you know, the good news is is we have been thinking about it. Uh, a bit of a shift. We we were looking at long range forecasts. We knew it was going to get a bit warm, but we didn't anticipate the heat uh, wave that we've had for the last couple of days. Um, so no doubt this is the beginning of what a plan would look like as we go more towards the, the, the winter. The challenge is, of course, our facilities are closed um, in two ways. One is a lot of the facilities that people would normally use to stay cool that uh, may not be additional things the city are doing are closed as well. People may choose to go to malls or restaurants or sit in a coffee shop just to cool down and have a, have a nice drink. Um, obviously, public pools and splash pads are, are closed by order of the province. So there were some specific challenges that we had, and, and one of the way. And then on top of that, when people do come together, uh, it has to be in a very different way. So the approach we've used uh, certainly in this next period, and, and it will be expanded upon as we get more of these heading towards the summer, is to open some of our facilities in a safe way. And uh, it, it does mean that. You know, it's it's not for hundreds of people to come to each of these centers, but we believe it's enough. And I'll get some reports today in terms of how it went yesterday. But my understanding is we were uh, we're we're all good so far. So there are six recreation centers, one library at the moment. We're going to bring on a couple more libraries as we move forward as places where people can go and get cool. But in the era of COVID, one is a uh, lot less people able to be in these spaces, absolute um, adherence to physical distancing within them, and not a lot to do in them. Uh, these aren't places where you're going to go and find a lot of activities and entertainment. It might be nice for us to think through how that might work later on in the summer. But right now, uh, these are pretty utilitarian, Bill. It's for places where people can go uh, to get cooled down. And obviously, that's a huge health issue for us. And we have lots of water on hand, too, so they can stay hydrated, keep cool uh, as we go through these next couple of days. And we'll continue to build on this plan as uh, we get closer to the summer. Now, I've seen some people on social media bemoaning the fact, for instance, as you mentioned, the pools and splash pads are, are not open. Uh, but let's look at the calendar here. They wouldn't be open this time of year anyway, would they, Paul? Well, a little bit of the push from, from council in years gone past was exactly for this kind of thing. <laughs> Could we open splash pads a little bit early? The bottom line is we can't. And it, it's not that we can in Hamilton because we don't want to. Uh, the province is under an order to not have those facilities yeah. open. So, so, yes, our council has recognized in the last couple of years that uh, you know what, by the mid to late part of May, you can get these periods where it would be great to have these uh, available. Um, but as I say, we, we couldn't action that even if we needed to. And that would have a whole other series of things that, that have to go along with it. As I you know, mentioned yesterday, you know, pools are an interesting piece because you've, you've got the other amenities. It's not so much the people in the pool. You can probably limit numbers, make people sure people stay apart. But you've got change rooms and you've got washrooms and you've got lifeguards that at times have to obviously be in very close contact with somebody if they were to have an emergency. So how do we keep that safe is not a quick answer of just cutting the lock on the uh, on the fence and letting people come and swim. So it is going to be a very different summer. Uh, and that's why our team's been thinking about, you know, how can we keep people safe? The other piece I will say, you know, a number of people are worried about uh, the homeless population and saying, well, geez, these rec centers don't have enough space for that. 
important to recognize our drop-in programs and our shelters are all cooling centers as well. People who are homeless can, can access those programs, including our, um, our temporary shelter at First Ontario Centre. So from a homeless perspective, there's lots of places to go. And then from a broader community perspective, lots of places to go. And then we get to the summer, Bill, uh, you know, as much as I'm very concerned about people who are homeless, the other side is people in, in apartments, uh, people who are living in, in housing situations where their place gets incredibly hot, they're not able to cool. And for people with some underlying health issues, could be COPD, could be, uh, you know, older adults, uh, particularly um, impacted by heat changes and, and high heat, uh, we need to make sure we keep people safe, both those who are housed as well as those who are homeless. There is a problem, uh, and uh, I think an ongoing problem, with long-term care facilities. And, and the facilities themselves, I'm talking about the structures, uh, Paul, uh, not the city-owned ones. I know you've spent a lot of time and energy with the McCass and Wentworth Lodge to make sure that, that the uh, the residents are as comfortable as possible. But you know, of course, that uh, that not all of those facilities do have air conditioning. Uh, they're privately owned, but, I mean, does the city have any sway there to, to, to make sure that everybody's okay, or are we simply leaving that up to the owner-operators? Well, it will be up to the owner-operators, and I would say in general the, the, the retirement homes and long-term care facilities would be a little less of, of our concern. Retirement homes maybe a bit, but as you get to some of the other group homes, residential care facilities and other group homes, you know, a really in- a strong encouragement to look at how they can be cooled um, or also making sure that people are well hydrated and have places to uh, to, to be cool. So, um, you know, some of them I know have, have good uh, outdoor space with shade and the ability to, you know, if we keep people hydrated as well, uh, that can work um, also. So it's it's an encouragement for people to recognize heat, but this isn't new. The heat component of it for congregate settings is not new. Um, what is going to be a bit new is how we handle having centers open throughout the summer that may not be open for other programming, Bill, because <laughs> in a normal situation, mm-hmm. our rec centers are open. So people could just come sure. and they could use the rec center and just hang out in them because they'd be open anyways. We extend the hours uh, and it's a, it's a piece of cake. Nothing in this world of COVID-19, particular at this moment in time, is a piece of cake. So uh, everything has to be done. And kudos to the staff who got this ready, working with public health and our recreation staff. So we have physical distancing well marked out in these centres in terms of how people sit. We also, in each of these cooling centres, have an isolation room. If someone was to start to display signs of being ill while they were there, they would be quickly isolated from others. It's our way of ensuring that we stop the spread. Uh, We wouldn't want to see a cooling centre, for instance, be the source of another outbreak as people then go back to their homes or where they live and 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 spread. So, um, you know, thinking through how this looks, and that gives you a little bit of a, a sense of why and nothing is the same right now. Everything we're doing is modified. Everything is a new plan. And, and while we may understand infection control and how to deal with some of those things, we have never had to do this type of planning at this level uh, before. And, you know, I think we're, we're making some progress. But I would, you know, say to the community, uh, recognize this won't be the cooling strategy as we head towards the summer. This is a, a sort of crash cooling center approach in the next couple of days. We are going to get a bit of relief. We'll keep building it. For instance, some people have said, there's not enough of these around the city. Uh, we're, we're pretty much fixated on the lower city at the moment. And the answer is we did some analysis of where the need is most acute, uh, went there first. But we will be having to look at this from a mountain perspective as well as, as some of the former municipalities as well as we go forward. It's not unusual to have a, a, a heat thing like this this early in the spring, but uh, more often than not, we're thinking July, August, when these things usually hit this, this part of the, of the world anyway. Uh, and in a perfect world, Paul, you'd like to think that some of the restrictions would be lifted by then and some of those facilities that you've just talked about might be available. However, uh, what we saw this past weekend, uh, here in Hamilton too, frankly, but more so, of course, in Toronto and in the GTA, uh, it was a lot of people just basically saying to hell with it, and we're not going to follow the restrictions anymore. And the premier has responded by simply saying, okay, well, we're going to hit the pause button then. We're not going to go on to the next phase of this until you guys start playing by the rules. It, it, that's got to be frustrating for you and your staff because you've got a game plan here, but it's all predicated on the fact that we, the public, have to play by the rules. It is. Uh, you know, it's, it, people, I think it, it, it washes over people because it's a bit become a cliche that it's in our hands, but it, it, it really is. Um, that's why you don't see dates and a lot of plans, including the, the Hamilton reopens plan here in Hamilton, is that um, the dates are very fluid. And what you saw from the premier in his remarks yesterday was 
um, you know, this is exactly why we don't put solid dates on things because we may have to assess and, and look at things. Um, we really do need to follow and we need to follow these for a long time, even as we move through the second and third sort of phases of, of uh, reopening provincially and how that rolls out uh, uh, locally. We need to continue these basics all the way through that. I, I think everybody felt, hey, we're into stage one as we head into stage two. Maybe physical distancing ends. It doesn't. The virus is in our community. Physical distancing will remain. It needs to be a part of our life for quite some time until we have an immunity strategy. Washing our hands, not going out when we're sick. Uh, if you can't maintain the physical distancing, wearing a, a mask in, in public, non-medical, of course, cloth mask uh, or face coverings, those things are going to remain. And, you know, if there is a little frustration, it is they're not overly complicated, Bill, and they also haven't changed. Some things have changed as we moved along, and about the only thing that's been added as we've moved is a really strong encouragement to use a, a mask in public if you can't keep that physical separation. But the physical distancing I've talked about for weeks and weeks, the uh, hand washing, not touching your face, not going out when you're sick, have not changed. They've been rock solid since day one. It's time we realize that that isn't about, you know, uh, eight weeks ago, that was the message. It's the message today, and we need to respect that. If we do that, we'll be able to manage the illness that will come. People will still get sick. Uh, some people will still need hospitalization. Thankfully, not very many. Um, but that will happen, and we can manage it. If we don't, the threat, of course, is that we get these surges, which is what we were trying to avoid in the first place. Well, yeah, and when you hear, I just not the people in the Toronto parks, because it was happening here in Hamilton. I mean, some of your staff, I got an email from a couple of city workers that said that there's some people actually trying to, st- st- I guess, tear apart the snow fence that's blocking the the the, uh, the escarpment staircases. They're closed to the public, people. That's why the, that the fencing is there. Uh, let's not get stupid about this. Uh, so that's happening, and that's very frustrating, I know, for you and for everyone else that's trying to play by this. Uh, a couple of quick things I want to get to in our remaining couple of moments here. And, and again, it comes back to, to some of the things that happened. And we'll go back to the, the huge congregation of people in the park. Uh, some experts are saying, well, you know, being outdoors in, in large numbers maybe isn't as bad as being indoors. Uh, I want to go back for a couple of seconds to the protocol that you and Dr. Richardson have talked about. Uh, it's not whether it's indoors or outdoors, as I'm extrapolating from what the doctor said and what you've told us, Paul. It's how long you're with somebody else. If you're passing somebody on a sidewalk, the chances of transmission are pretty slim. But if you're going to sit down in a park for two or three hours with somebody, that's the same as sitting down at Tim Hortons Field. I mean, you're really you're, you're pushing your luck, aren't you? It is. It is about duration. It is about uh, how, how close you are together. Uh, certainly indoors is even a heightened uh, level. Yeah, so as you sure. go down the levels, uh, you know, it would be heightened indoors as opposed to outdoors. But if you are spending a significant amount of time in a very uh, small con- uh, space with with somebody, it really doesn't matter whether it's it's outside or inside. The, the chance of, of that transmission uh, is there. And so that's why that physical uh, separation is is so critically important. So I think you know these messages need to keep be repeated, 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 uh, and and yeah, there is no challenge. You don't have to. We don't have to expand our sidewalks to be 20 meters wide so that everybody can have that two meter halo when they walk by somebody. That's not where the risk lies. The risk lies in some of the behaviors that certainly we saw in Toronto and and I do know we have episodically here in Hamilton. Um, but it's also the reason why, if you just go back to the stairs, I, I get it. We've opened a lot of things and we have a lot of opportunities. The stairs is an interesting piece because it's really hard to keep that two meters. Plus, you've got the surface of the railings. And we just want to understand what the risk factor is of the railings and the, and the fact that the physical distancing uh, may not be as, as easy to maintain on those stairs. And that's why they're closed. So it's all meant for people's safety, not because we just uh, we just don't want to open them. Okay, about a minute or so left. I want to also address uh, something the Premier said over the weekend about uh, about getting tested. And, and then we all know that that's going to be one of the key elements going forward here. And and the Premier essentially said anybody that wants a test in Ontario now should get one, uh, which led to some people contacting us and saying, well, I can just walk into one of these centres and get it. Uh, there's still a protocol in place, isn't there? There is, and, and uh, I know the public health and, and our health partners in terms of primary care and the hospitals are are really waiting for more of the idea of how we're going to make this happen. It will require more resources. The goal is is something uh, everybody's very supportive of. Uh, we need to make sure that testing is available, um, uh, but it's it's also the how we get all that stuff done. So. 
certainly the premier is uh, is is pushing for the testing to be done right. We support that. It's just going to be a few days to get those those nuts and bolts details done for Hamiltonians, so that they're not discouraged when they go somewhere and and finding out that it's it's not what they expected. So I know lots of work is happening, but in terms of a testing strategy, it's a key part of it. And then obviously following up if there are positives and the contact tracing and everything through public health. That's how we will keep things going well as we start to reopen the community. So just don't show up at one of these places and say, well, the premier says I can have this. You still have to have an appointment. Yeah, just make sure. That, as of uh, today, going, anyway. Yeah, go to your go to our website. Uh, as the information changes and more availability is there, uh, we'll update the, the website uh, very much so. But still the best option right now is make sure there's an appointment in place, um, although we're trying to be very flexible with that as we work out these these new approaches. By the way, let me give uh, you guys a plug for that because I get a lot of requests. You know, hey, what's open? What's not open? What about this? What about that? Uh, you guys update the website uh, continually on that. If people need to get information about where they should go and how they can get there and what's uh, what's going to be expected, uh, go to that web page because it's, it's got all the information that people need there. What's the, the page again, Paul? So it's uh, hamilton.ca slash coronavirus, and, and uh, you know, just going to hamilton.ca, you'll see it on our flagship anyway. Sure is, so yeah. The city's website is a great place for resources, not only for those who may be unwell and wondering what to do uh, or scared and wondering what to do if they come in contact, but the other side, as you say, Bill, is that's the fastest way for us to keep up people up to date with what's open, what's closed. And also where you can apply for things. We also keep a very robust uh, set of information about the financial supports that are available, whether you're a business, whether you're an individual or family. So it is a great place to start, even if it also then links you to some of the other things that are happening provincially and federally. And thanks for that plug. We work hard at making sure that's really uh, well up to date. And it's something we can obviously change on a dime as things change in our community. Absolutely. Paul, stay cool. Thanks again. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Paul Johnson, who was the Director of Emergency Operations for the city. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, I talk about testing. As we mentioned just before the news break, uh, all of the experts that we've listened to over the last number of weeks have talked about the importance of, well, all the things we're supposed to be doing, physical distancing, uh, self-isolation, if in fact we've got some symptoms, that sort of thing. Uh, but at the same time, we've got to get testing done so we can track exactly where this is, where the hotspots may or may not be. And uh, the Premier did talk about that just a, a little while ago, and here's what he had to say. If you feel you need a test, you'll be able to get a test. So please don't wait. Our assessment centers are ready to receive you. And the only way we can get those testing numbers up, the only way we can get those numbers where they need to be, is for everyone who feels they need it to get a test. Uh, easier said than done, because that's going to require ramping up the amount of testing that gets done. Well, let's focus on what's going on uh, here in the Hamilton area, because, uh, and this is one of the reasons I love doing segments like this, uh, because we are probably don't talk enough about this. This uh, an innovative. Uh, center for medical research so many wonderful things that uh, a lot of people just assume well that happens someplace else we're developing right here in hamilton some great technologies that are happening and uh, this falls right into, into that same category right now uh, hamilton scientists are developing uh, novel methods for massively increasing covid19 testing here in ontario this is a, a joint project that's being done with st joseph's hamilton and, and uh, with of course the st joseph's healthcare and hamilton health sciences who have worked collaboratively of course on so many different issues joining us to talk this is Dr. Marek Smeya, who is an infectious disease physician researcher with St. Joe's and also the interim chief of laboratory medicine at the Hamilton Region Laboratory Program. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, my pleasure. Very timely, what's going on here. Maybe you could explain to us about the collaboration between uh, what you guys are doing at the uh, the Regional Laboratory Program and how this is going to have an impact on this, this, I think, massive, massive testing that needs to be done. Yeah, so the first thing is maybe just to take you back what we've already done, and of course, we've sure. got big ambitions of where we want to go as well. So back in January, you know, our lab developed a test that rolled out by March, not only here in Hamilton, but we also have colleagues who rolled it out in Toronto, in Mississauga, and other places. And so that test has been done something like 50,000 times just here in Hamilton by the Hamilton Regional Lab Medicine Program, but it's also been done perhaps 100,000 times through all those other labs. So, you know, the work that we did back January, February into early March 
uh, you know, something north of 100,000 tests done as a direct result of that. And we think that's been fantastic for, uh, you know, trying to get timely patient care, trying to identify outbreaks early. But, you know, all of Ontario's tested 600,000. Uh, the premier is now talking. And frankly, I share his interest in trying to do massive, widespread testing, I just share a fear of how quickly we're able to scale up unless we do really think outside the box. So what we've been doing in terms of thinking outside the box is not is not a new idea. In fact, it goes back at least 20 years. Uh, labs have done this selectively for certain types of tests in the past. And that's if we can't do uh, you know, a million tests a day, and we can't at this point anywhere in the province. But if we can do 20,000 tests, what if we could pool those four to one or even higher? In other words, take four samples, put them together in one, call it one test. And as long as it's negative, you've resulted four people. Of course, if it's positive, then you have to go back to those four individual tubes. Um, and so this is very efficient when you're screening asymptomatic, low-risk people. It's very inefficient if you've got a high rate of positivity, uh, perhaps in an outbreak setting where, where people are, are, you know, where many people are going to be positive. Now, with that in mind, though, Doctor, uh, given the scenario that we're working under right now, I guess, and this is with my limited information, uh, your test seems to be the best way to go because most of the people that are being tested right now are going to be negative, are they not? That's correct. Yeah, even even people who are symptomatic, uh, you know, the overall rates in the province are about 5%. But if you look at uh, healthcare workers who are tested because of symptoms, it's even lower than that. So, so yes. And, and then if we start asking the question, where is it reasonable to screen asymptomatic people? You know, there's people who have no symptoms, but perhaps are in an occupation such as healthcare or grocery store clerks or taxi driving where there may be higher risk than the general population. What if you screened a thousand of those people? And it's not, not going to be anywhere near 5%. It's probably going to be less than 1%. But of course, if we could do that cost effectively and quickly uh, then that would be helpful to those groups now one of the big challenges and i'm sure this is something that you and your team talked about this back in january when you were initiating all this process uh was supply chain everybody was jumping on this at once and it was a matter of hey yeah. uh, where are we going to get this stuff yeah. I mean, everybody wants it everybody's going to get it uh you yeah. found an answer for that though well, we think we've found partial answers. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something you have to reinvent almost every week. So, uh, so one of the big things is the, the swab, what we take for a swab, which is the sample that, that we take from a uh, person. The second is the transport medium, and that is a solution that has to stabilize your, uh, your virus so that you don't destroy the RNA, otherwise you can't detect it. Uh, so you need something that's stable. But uh, we also found when we use the, the, the type of transport media that we're already on the market and when we combined them in from four into one that these media always gave you a loss of sensitivity by that i mean if we took four samples and if one plus one plus one plus one is supposed to equal four we were finding it only equal three and a half and what that meant is out of a hundred positives we might miss five and although that's pretty good we weren't happy with that. And specifically, Sylvia in my lab spent probably a month trying to puzzle this out. And what she found is that some of the, the liquid media we were using in the past somehow had chemicals in it that affected this. So we basically uh, developed a new medium that would not only allow us to stabilize the virus so that it would you know, re- re- remain positive, it also inactivated the virus so it would not be a hazard to our laboratory staff. Uh, and finally, it was able to take that one plus one plus one plus one and get four instead of three and a half. So it retained signal even when we pooled, which was, you know, a very, very important thing for us. And, you know, that sounds simple, but that part probably took six weeks. Well, and and therein lies the situation. I mean, you guys didn't just say, well, this is the protocol. You said this is the protocol, but there's some flaws in it. Now, how can we correct the flaws? So you're working on parallel paths here. You're trying to develop a more efficient system at the same time. It's it's kind of like trying to repair a car while you're driving it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, one of the biggest barriers still is is the the actual process of getting tested, of getting registered, of getting specimens to allow of of resulting those specimens. Uh, Those things still need incredibly to, you know, to be made much more efficient. But I remind my kids, and I don't know if you're of my age, I'm in my 50s. I remember a time where every February 28th, people lined up 
you know, uh, for for three days before the Ministry of Transport to get your new license plate, which alternated every year from blue to oh, white. Yeah. And my kids cannot believe that rather than ordering your sticker on the internet, you actually have to line up in person that everybody in Ontario did it at the same time. I think we're kind of there with our lab testing. We're still at that, you know, February 28th uh, license plate change. And we've got to really reinvent that part of it. The lab part, we've got to reinvent, but we've got to reinvent how you get samples into the system and how you get the results back to people so how do you get this message out uh, you know this is a great program that you guys are doing of course here in collaboration with the hamilton health sciences and st joe's uh but there are other instances going on in other parts of the world is there a, is there a, a network here doctor a communication system where people can say look this, hey we're doing this here have you guys tried this yeah, so uh, for, as a microbiologist, I'm part of a network across the United States and Canada, and in fact, it's, it's worldwide. And so there are many, many posts every day about different ideas, about swabs, about media, about pooling, about different things like that. And then we, we also live in an era where people publish very quickly. So there mm-hmm. already have been thousands of publications about diagnostic testing for, uh, for COVID-19. Uh, unfortunately, not all of them are good quality publications, but there's certainly a huge amount of of, of literature already out there. And that's really quite unprecedented. You know, four months in, we used to see the first publication coming out to see thousands and thousands is, is helpful, if a little bit overwhelming. That's something I think we as a, as a public tend to forget. Certainly you don't uh, in, the, in the lab with what you guys are doing. But uh, this is a virus that's still at its infancy. We're still learning a lot about it, aren't we? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the new studies we're going to be doing is looking at how often do you have virus in stool? How much is there? How long does it last? And there's a big, big controversy worldwide over, you know, if it's in stool, is it infectious? Could you ever get it into sewage? Could you monitor it through sewage? And so huge, huge unanswered questions. But the uh, the most fascinating part of that, I just read a story saying, well, if it's in stool and if it exposes our immune system, could we develop an oral vaccine so that our gastrointestinal tract is the place that we develop immunity first? And maybe that would be a more, you know, uh, a practical way of distributing. So lots of science, lots of ideas, but so much to do just in the basic day-to-day world. Maybe let's get back to a very elementary question uh, for for the sake of our listeners. Maybe if you could, doctor, just maybe go over again the importance of testing. In other words, this it's going to get us an yeah. awful lot of data, and I've seen some of the numbers. I know that uh, the capacity used to be about 800 samples a day, and, and with what you're doing here, that can go up to about 6,000. Uh, I know you want to even yeah. increase that, but what what can yeah. we do with that data to try to, to well to not just flatten the curve but defeat this? Yeah. So, so the first thing is like we're, we're doing about 800 to 1200 through our clinical lab. We're not yet ready for 6000. That's what the grant is about. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, uh, but, but what we think we can get there within a couple of weeks. Um, so, so I, I think you ask a good question. Test data is useless unless it's tied to some sort of intelligence. And so I think this is a time we need to just not just support, but probably greatly expand the public health department's ability to track people to, uh, you know, basically investigate contacts of people. What they found in China when they started doing widespread testing is a lot of the secondary cases were within families where people, you know, that, that you infect one person, they then infect their family. And in fact, three quarters of the cases were households. So how do we test so that we can impact on that? And how do we do that within a very, very short period of time? Because then you want to act on that. How do you self-quarantine at home? How do you separate families or at least put them uh, in a way where they're not infecting each other because that could dramatically reduce the number of of cases. So I think we need intelligence around who gets infected, where there are outbreaks, and we need a public health response. We need apps, but we still just need old gumshoe public health where they call people or talk to people. Um, I think we need all of that. Testing without the response doesn't work. Um, But I think this is a great opportunity to develop, you know, this is public health kind of um, stuff. How, how do we involve the public health in it a lot, you know, a lot more? How do these apps or other ways of knowing where is their virus, where is it spreading, where do we need to do more testing? Um, and, and obviously recognizing we cannot ramp up uh, even by September to millions of tests per day. So we have to be wise in terms of whom we test and how we react to that. 
have we learned anything from this? And by that, I mean, I, I, and we've had this discussion with some of your, uh, some of your coworkers in, in, in the, some of the great lab work that's going on here, Doctor, over the last couple of weeks. And uh, we were told after the SARS epidemic that, yeah, you know what, we got this now. We, with the, we're yep. aware that these things can happen. We're going to put a protocol in place, and everything's going to be fine. We're going to be as preventative as we can. Yet here we are again. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we rolled it. I mean, I think we, we have done better in many things in terms of our lab testing, in terms of our hospital infection prevention and control, in terms of flu outbreaks across the city. I think we have come a long, long way in 20 years on that. And I think that part of the system has worked reasonably well. I don't think we know how to scale up very well. I think, you know, hospitals and public health departments and all of these publicly funded institutions are incredibly careful and good with managing the taxpayers' money. I think that, you know, that's a good thing in most times. But it also means we don't know how to ramp up something tenfold because we don't know how to rapidly hire more computer people, hire more public health investigators, do all those sort of things. And it's partly because we're not used to massive scale up with, with, with kind of almost unlimited budgets. But the second thing is there aren't necessarily the people to do that. So, so I think that we, we, we don't know how to scale. And I do wonder whether we need to work more with the innovators and the uh, computer IT people and the startups and others. I think there's a lot of room still for innovation in this space and, uh, and, and making sure that we're working together to develop something new. It's, you know, we don't know how to scale up something tenfold, so let's innovate together. Well, and I don't want to drag you into the political weeds on this, but I mean, part of it comes down to funding. And I know that uh, when this started, yeah. there was a, a hue and cry that, look at the research dollars just aren't here. Uh, and, and those are government decisions. And I know that you do your best in, to try to influence that. But, uh, you know, politicians tend to have short memories sometimes, too. And you've got their attention now, that's for sure, as yeah. we go forward. Yeah. And, and to your point, I mean, we've seen this. With, I, I know we've done a number of programs here with, uh, with folks from, from Hamilton Health Sciences and from McMaster, of course, and the Innovation Park right across the road from where our radio stations located and we've seen a number of these startups that are coming forward and, and I'm, I'm heartened to see doctor an awful lot of them are, are medical research projects that people have decided to adopt and try to in other words let's find a, a better mousetrap to do something like yeah, this yeah. and that's that's encouraging yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, th- I think this is a time, you know, to uh, to innovate, to do new things. And, and I think most importantly, what we try to do, because I work in both our clinical and our, and our research labs, is when we get new equipment, which is for purpose right now to increase COVID testing, is how do you then use it a year, two years, five years down the road? How does it strengthen the laboratory? How do we actually eliminate unnecessary parts of the processes so that we're a better, stronger lab in a year and in two years' time once, you know, COVID is hopefully not on the horizon and not as big a a part of what we do? but it's going to be around. I mean, unless we defeat this thing, this is, uh, again, we don't want a quite false hope that you know, there's going to be a vaccine by the end of this year, as some people are, are suggesting. Uh, yeah. We're in this for the long haul, aren't we? Yeah, I think realistically, uh, I think we have to expect two years before mass vaccination. And if it can happen sooner, we'll, we'll all be happy to see that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the vaccine, I'm not a part of the vaccine uh, uh, research uh, uh, groups of any sort. They've got a massive, massive challenge. And obviously, we're all hoping that they, that they do a great job and the sooner the better. Of course, there can be missteps there too, just like in testing. Uh, you know, the, the obvious solution sometimes doesn't work out quite as well as you'd like it to. But I, I, I think realistically, within six months, we will have widespread uh, studies, at least, of vaccines. And I'm hopeful that in less than two years, we will have widespread worldwide vaccination. Well, and we're also looking at, as you mentioned, because of the testing that's being done here, to, to get a better understanding of what it is that we're dealing with, uh, which will mm-hmm. hopefully guide public policy on an awful lot of these things. Uh, so we're not just, uh, you know, running around in the dark trying to decide exactly what we're going to do. Uh, Doctor, I, I'm just about out of time. I want to thank you, first of all, for the time today. Uh, and thank you and your staff for the great work that you've been doing uh, in, in getting to a, a, a positive conclusion to this. And I know your work is, is nowhere near done on this situation. But uh, the determination that you and your staff have shown and the the dedication to this is just remarkable. Thank you for that. Thank you, Bill, and uh, thank you to your listeners for their interest. Okay, we'll stay in touch. Thanks again, Doctor.
Uh, Dr. Marek Smeja, who is an infectious disease physician, and this is this is earth-shattering. This is groundbreaking work that's going on right here in Hamilton between St. Joseph's and Hamilton Health Sciences to increase testing, uh, which is exactly what the, not just the p- politicians want to see, but what the disease specialists want to see so they can get a better track as to exactly what's going on. Continued good luck to, uh, to Dr. Smeja and everybody who's involved in that project. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of those policies that uh, the Ford government is dealing with is long-term care facilities. We already know that uh, here in Ontario, about 82% of the deaths from COVID-19 are uh, residents from long-term care facilities. That's that's a problem. The Premier has admitted that's a problem, stated that he is uh, actually going to have a, a commission that's going to be struck, uh, that's going to start working after the summer. don't know why the delay. But many people are saying that's not good enough. A commission is not actually going to get to the bottom of what the crisis is here. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan, retired journalist uh, from the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill low these many years. Uh, Badger, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Good, Bill. Yourself? I'm hanging in, coping with what we can do here. Uh, thank God for air conditioning. Yes. Uh, not everybody has it, though, so uh, I guess we have to take it while we can. Now, listen, some people, and I've, I've got this reaction from some folks on, on Twitter over the last couple of days and saying, you know, commission inquiry, tomato, tomato, it's no big difference. I mean, you've covered this stuff for a long time, Richard. There is a difference. Oh, there is. Um, but I noticed that you, the NDP is uh, calling for a public inquiry. Bill, if I had a dollar... For every time the you know the NDP called called for a public inquiry into this or that, I would be a millionaire. I swear. It's you know it's they're very time consuming. They're very expensive, and a lot of it you know I'm sorry, but a lot of it you know when it's done at the end of the day, it just gathers dust somewhere. I don't disagree with the uh, with the prime or premier's point of view on the commission. But it should be started now, not September. The the problem is right now. I don't know, but I think a lot of your listeners will agree. The way we te- uh, treat our seniors is in this province, for in large part, it's just abysmal. And something has to be done. Every government wears this. Believe me, this isn't just a Ford government, you know, and or the a Liberal government. Every party where's the fact that they haven't done enough to look after long-term care or, or even residential care. And in some cases, they backed off increasingly over the years on inspections of these homes. And, and, and you think about it now in, in the midst of a, uh, you know, a pandemic, how could that be possible? Well, it, it was and it is. And something yeah. has to be done. And I think a commission... And more important than that, I think an inspector general or something to that effect for in terms of long, you know, in charge of long-term care should be appointed to look after these homes and make sure that they're kept up, you know, to number one quality, like old the old Ford, you know, you know, uh, statement that quality is number one. Well, let me tell you, it has to be done. It, it's just... It can't any longer go on the way it has. It's just, it's unacceptable. As we've talked about, I mean, COVID did not cause this this crisis. It exposed it. This has been going on for a long, long time. And, and you know, Richard, for the number of years that you've talked to family members that have had, you know, loved ones in these facilities, and I'm not going to try to paint them all with the same brush because I know there are some people that are doing their best to, to try to make a, a, a decent life for these people. And, and I'm not even going to point the finger at the frontline workers either because they're, they've are they got their own set of problems that I'm sure we're going to get to in a couple of minutes here, staffing-wise and and salary-wise and things of this nature. But why do they keep passing the buck? Every government says, we're going to fix this, we're going to do something about it. Uh, The Ford government actually talked about this during the campaign way back when, uh, and they turned around and in their budget cuts, they actually eliminated the the, the inspections. There's over 280 facilities here in the province, only nine inspections all last year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, come on. No, it's... It's exasperating, and you probably can tell that in my voice because I, you know, I've done stories on this bill over the years, yeah. and nothing's changed. You know, we we have, think of it, we we have uh, privately run homes that make money on looking after our seniors. 
that's got to be a question that's got to come out. Is that what we want? Do we want companies running our, our long-term care homes based on the fact that they make money off them? So th- that has to be looked after. They have to look after paying paying people properly, as they do in B.C., paying them a living wage so they don't have to hold two or three jobs down. Uh, they have they need more nurses in these long-term care homes, not one registered nurse, but probably up to 50% of the staff at, at, at these long-term care homes should be nurses or, or pra- nurse practitioners. This is the way it. This is this is going to require a from bottom up change. It, it's going to require a sea change. This can no longer go on the way it has been. It ha, it has to be addressed. And if the commission is going to address it, fine. Um, you know, I'm not big on on public inquiries. I just think they're too tedious, and they and, and many you know in some cases are required, but they're. You know, they just take so long and they're expensive. You know, you just want to take a look at your, at, uh, for example, at uh, the Red Hill Creek Expressway. The money it's going to cost in that, that's just one aspect, and that's a public inquiry. So do we need that? Let's. We know what has to be done. There has been, I can't tell you the number of reports and think tanks, and as the Toronto Star reports, universities and coroner's office, and even public inquiries into long-term care that have been held. We don't need to hold another one. We can just look at what they uh, what they found out, what the results of those inquiries were, and build on them, and make sure that it changes from the bottom up. And I'm talking about in you know, changes in the way that these places are built in, in terms of not having, you know, four people to a room and, and looking at them in an entirely different way than we're looking at now. And we're looking at now is basically warehousing in a way, and that's it can't exist anymore. That has to stop now. And one of the things we have to, I guess, determine here, though, is what's what's the end game here? What are we trying to achieve by this? Whether we have a commission, whether we have an inquiry, whether we have an inquisition, I don't care what you call it, if if the recommendations that come forth with that, if there are going to be recommendations, are not binding, what the hell's the use? Well, they have to be, Bill. They, gotta, they have to be. We can no longer turn a blind eye to this situation. This, You know, like you said, this has existed for Ever, and the pandemic has put a, a, a light on it right now. But this is the time to do it, and it's going to take some work, and it's going to take the government's input, and it's going to take their buy-in to changing it because people are going to demand this. And you'll see that I don't think any government is going to be able to, whether it's you know the Ford government or whatever successive government, is going to be able to get away with doing nothing. Well, something has to be done. Uh, let's let's cut to the bottom line. And you've written about this many, many times over the years. Uh, money talks in politics. We know that. It, it, no matter what politicians say, and I don't care if it's Doug Ford or uh, you know Kathleen Wynne, go down the list of, of past premiers. Uh, they may have the best of intentions, but uh, there's a lot of money in this business, and there's a lot of money uh, people making money in this business. And I'm not, you know, we're not going to get into the Mike Harris on the board of Chartwell. I'm just saying there's a lot of money, and there's a lot of money to be made. Uh, and they don't want to have their hands tied in situations like this, which is maybe one of the reasons why uh, not a whole lot has been done, because this is a pretty strong lobby. And, and no matter what we do, I mean, you, Richard, you know, there's a family right now that owns a series of these things in the Hamilton area, uh, where the, the you know the situations there are abysmal. We knew about this 20 years ago, and and the city council at that time tried to do something about it. These guys are still operating. Well, it's funny you should mention that, Bill, because a friend of mine just sent me a story from 1998 about uh, about the Martinos and and how they 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 delved into the past and a lot of it through the Globe and Mail. This is the uh, this is um, this is from Florida. It was the Tampa Bay Business Journal, and they were operating in Florida too, causing all kinds of different problems and 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 butting heads with regulators. That was in Florida, 
and they can, you know, they we, they have a history here in Ontario. Uh, some would say checkered, but you know, we'll we'll leave it up to them. But how can a company, or how could you know owners like this be allowed to continue to own these homes when they have a history that many would say is co- totally unacceptable? But there they go. No, it, it doesn't it, make it, sense. It's like the old West. Nobody's regulating this. I, and, and, you know, they'll come back and, you know, the organizations, we've heard from some of the ministry folks about this and say, well, you know, there are standards. Well, who's enforcing them? Well, you, you, you hit it on the hill when you said, you know, what was your nine inspections last year or something? Like yeah. That? Yeah. I mean, like, what? Nine inspections? My, my mom was in a long-term care home. I'll tell you the problems I saw there were just staggering. I mean, and again, no reflection on the workers. They were busting their butts. But it was just, it was, you know, you'd walk down the hall and all you could smell was, you know, you know, feces and, you know, and urine. And, you know, enough to, to gag you. And people laying in bed that should be up and about because they just didn't have the staff to look after them. How many stories have you heard and written about over the years uh, about uh, about assaults in some of these facilities? Oh. Sometimes it's patient against patient. Sometimes it's patients against staff. Uh, and you talk to some of the staff. We had one person, remember, who would end up dying after a, a, a beating that he incurred at, at St. Joseph's Villa a few years ago. Sad, sad story. Uh, and it's it, a lot of it comes down to staffing. Well, it happens at night, and guess what? We don't have so many people on at night. Uh, and it's it's a cost-cutting measure. Well, is you know, what about the safety of the of the residents? I mean, these are all things that need to be discussed. And whether they're going to get discussed at a commission or not, the, the bottom line here is the ball's going to be in the government's court. What are you going to do about it? You know, it's great to gather this information. But in the first five minutes of this conversation, Richard, you already mentioned about seven or eight things that the government knows damn well they should be doing right now, and they haven't done it yet, nor did the past government. That would help solve the problem. It's not going to be the, you know, the silver bullet answer to this, but it's going to get us down the right road. But yet, you know, where's the action? Well, it's, it's, like I say, they have to have buy-in. I, I, I really believe, Bill, that they, they can't get away with sitting on their hands on this one. I mean, people, people. I mean, you know, that that incident at the, at the what is it, the Roslyn Retirement Home, yeah, yep. has has reverberated across the country, where they evacuated this resident this residential home and took most took most everyone except one. To the hospital, mm-hmm. and I mean you. I mean, you've had this on your show before. I know that, but and they left this person there for eighteen hours, and people are going, "How could that possibly happen?" But that's just one. That's just one incident of you know. They, they say that you know research has already been done that if you you were, had a greater chance, four times that, that is a greater chance of getting uh, COVID or, or dying in a, in a for-profit home in Ontario. So, so that's something else. I'm not saying that the, the, you know, the private sector can't have a place in it, but this is all the stuff that has to be looked at. You have to set parameters and say, this is it. If you want to run a, a, a residential home for seniors or you want to run a long-term care, this is the line, and you won't pass that line. You'll make sure people are bathed, looked after, gotten out of bed, you know, given given the proper food. That's what it'll be. There'll be no shortcuts. There'll be no, you know, you know, giving somebody one piece of meat instead of two pieces of meat because that saves you money. This saving money and looking after our our seniors in this province should not be combined. There should be care, and that's what it is. There's, there should be no shortcuts. There should be people that are looked after the way they sh- should be looked after. You know, our, our seniors are an important part of this province, particularly now with, you know, with all the baby boomers. I mean, my God, are we just going to like, warehouse these people and, and let these in some cases, these slipshod companies look after them. I think not, and this is this is what this government is going to have to look at. 
there, there's no way here, I'm not, nor I think is anybody trying to accuse Ontario of being the worst at this, because this is a, this oh, is a no. North American problem. But, but that, that doesn't mean we can't be one of the best uh, by changing around. And th- there's no short-term solution here. I mean, you know, I mean, the NDP's initial th- 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 thing of this was, well, we, ha- we have to make this, uh, you know, run by the government. It's got to be public, uh, which is their solution to everything, right? I mean, you know, forget about private money. These people are all just, guilt, you know, greedy people. And and I, I hate to paint everybody the same, but I know some private operations here in this city that are run very, very well. Oh, I'm sure there are, Bill. And God bless them, and that's great. I know some people that have, uh, you know, family members and loved ones in there, and they're they're happy. They love the level of care. They love what they're getting. It's not cheap, but they're getting what they want. So that's not the answer. It's not the answer to simply say, okay, let's make it all government run. But the government does have a responsibility to monitor and to police that that whole industry, as they do with just about every other industry, uh, where we're looking after the well-being of, 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 of other human beings, especially the frail and elderly. If they're regulated and inspected, I don't care who runs them. You want to go for lunch uh, later on, uh, you know, Badger? Uh, well, we can't. The restaurant's not open. But, you know, the, that little green thing right in the door tells us that, hey, somebody was in here recently and made sure that they're doing it right. That's yeah. good. I feel better about that. Let's go in and order a sandwich and a beer. That's right. Long-term care facilities, there's no sticker on the door. You don't know what you're getting, and you don't know what the residents are getting. Nope. And I saw it pers- firsthand, believe me. Well, you know, when I had the premier on a few weeks ago, I mean, he was quite adamant that he wanted to do so. Of course, as you know, his mother-in-law is in one of these facilities, too. I don't know what the level of care is that uh, that she's getting right now, but uh, it's brought it home to him anyway. And well, I guess Of course it has, and it does for all of us. I mean, I had a bit of an insight as a reporter because I'd done so many stories yeah. over the years on, on long-term care and the problems therein. But, boy, Bill, there's nothing like seeing it firsthand. Well, and sadly, you know, many of us have. And, I mean, you know, the, the description you talked about walking down the hall to go and see somebody and the odors that you would tell and, and, and the, the lack of care in some of these facilities, the lack of staff in some of these facilities. And, uh, and it's, it's all got to be addressed. And I don't know whether the commission's going to do this, but I, I share your concern that if this is a problem, and it certainly is, and if this has been going on for quite some time, that why are they waiting another four months before, or three months, I guess, before they do anything about it? Well, they can't wait longer, and I, you know, with the number of people that are aging, I think they're, you know, this, you know, this is, you know, uh, a lot of people are coming up, white hairs, we call them, they're coming up and going to say, are going to have a big voice, and they're going to say, this is unacceptable, we're not going to put up with it. And these will be people, maybe that may end up in long-term care, but they're, they're, they're looking at it and saying, you know, you're not going to get away with this any longer. You well, can't and treat that's people like this. That's uh, that's going to be up to us to make sure that we do hold the government's feet to the fire on this. Uh, Badger, as always, thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queens Park for so many years and Parliament Hill, for that matter, uh, and wrote extensively about this uh, many, many times. Yet here we are, still with the same problems. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.